You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome somebody from the right coast, all the way over here on the left coast of the United States. It's, it's particularly special because we tend to be a little optimized on, the, on California, if much less the, the Bay Area. But here we have somebody who did not go to Stanford, went to UAB and MIT. He is uh, well known in the entrepreneurial community in Boston because he's an angel investor. And he currently is the CTO and co-founder of a public company called HubSpot. Now, another ETL moment is that they just held their earnings call. As a public company, you have, you report your results every quarter. Well, they just did, and it wasn't just any quarter, it was the full year of results for 2015. If you have a moment, go look at the results. They're quite spectacular for this company. Let's see, what else should I say about it? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So, my wake up was I'm getting ready to, to do this, and I then put two and two together. Oh my gosh, this is the blogger for onstartups.com. I've been recommending onstartups.com for a long, long time because I've been reading it for a long, long time. It's 10 years old. If you have never visited that site, um, I urge you to, to have a look. It's, true, it's really one of the best blogs out there having to do with entrepreneurship and innovation. So come on, let's give a really warm and big welcome to Dharmesh Shah. All right. Well, thanks, Stanford and the ETL, for having me. A um, couple of quick disclaimers. Uh, I, I'm Darmesh, by the way. I'm on Twitter, as it turns out, as well. Um, and I'm CTO, so that means this is not my natural state of being. My natural state of being is writing Python code, not being a public speaker. So bear with me if I sound nervous. It's because I'm nervous. I get better, though. Um, trust me. So uh, my claim to pseudo-fame is I co-found a company called HubSpot uh, about nine and a half years ago. It's grown, uh, went public about a year ago, and doing well. Um, HubSpot's in the marketing and sales software space, uh, but this is not about HubSpot, actually. We're going to talk about people and culture. So I'm going to skip through this. Uh, this is the gratuitous ringing of the bell photo that must be included in every company's uh, slide deck in at least 24 months after they go public. Uh, so this is us. Uh, some of you might be wondering, like, Darmesh, why don't you look like more excited. That's me excited right there. Um, <laughs> that's as excited as I get. And so, what's that? Someone, the very last minute, one of our, uh, I think one of our marketing people said, you know what, we should do something like noteworthy or remarkable that people ask us exactly why the sunglasses. No reason. It's like, why not? It's, um, so that was, and it's like, Darmesh, put these sunglasses on. I'm like, okay, fine. Um, so the company's done well. We just, um, as, as Tom mentioned, uh, we just had our uh, quarterly earnings call. And so the company's about $180 million in revenue last year, growing 57%, um, which means something because that's actually relatively hard to do at that scale. So we're proud of that. That's the last braggy slide I think I have, um, so we can kind of get on with business. This is a safe harbor statement, which basically says I may make forward-looking statements, and if I do, the future may not be what I said it was going to be, and uh, don't buy stock based on things that I say. Um, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but that's what it, that's what it says. It's an SEC requirement, and I didn't do this for fun, just for entertainment value. Um, so uh, one big disclaimer, 
is, um, so HubSpot's been successful, and I've been talking to entrepreneurs for a long, long time, um, and realize this is, like, one of the things that happens with startup advice generally is you have this kind of what I think of as, like, extrapolation from a data point of one. Essentially, it's like, oh, we did this, and good things happened, so that must have been the right thing to do. So um, not all unicorns dispense things. Not everything they did was right, and not all the things that they say are necessarily applicable. So that's my uh, take it. Um, take it as it is. So I'm going to kind of tell you a story here in terms of, uh, not my life story, we'll fast forward through my uh, times on the dusty streets of India and how that informed my notion of unit economics and SaaS businesses. But um, so I, I went to school here for grad school. Um, that's what's, it's MIT, what some of you may recall the, like the other school on that other coast somewhere, um, uh, which it is. And uh, while there at grad school, I met uh, this guy. Uh, his name is Brian Halligan, and he's my co-founder. He's the CEO of HubSpot, right? So we met about 11 years ago um, in, in grad school. And uh, the one problem uh, was that Brian was, uh, was in business school working towards an MBA. Any MBA students here? Yeah, a few that will confess, especially with that lead up, right? It's like, okay, um, there's probably at least a few of you that wouldn't raise your hand. It's okay. Um, and so the question is, like, well, why is that a problem, Darmesh? It's just because uh, you know, he was an MBA. And so because there was this prevailing theory, oops, um, in startup land, that says, okay, well, let's say your probability of success um, for some definition of success is roughly 1%. Pick it up, let's go for getting to a billion dollars or whatever it is. Um, and then there's factors that impact uh, that probability, uh, one of which is this uh, kind of very exponential kind of factor where n is equal to the number of MBAs on the early team. <laughs> um, and so that's been like a long running thesis uh, within the startup community for as long as I've known the startup community. So I was like, okay, well, you know, startups are hard, and I'm about to start this thing with a co-founder that, you know, like right out of the gate, um, our odds have gone down 50%. And then like 30 seconds later, I had the realization that I also was in business school um, working towards, uh, it's like, okay, well, now that's two, um, so okay. So, uh, so that's, you know, my co-founder and I, CEO and CTO, and then we went on to hire a VP of marketing, <laughs> a VP of sales, a VP of customer, Success and a VP of engineering, all of which were MBAs, all from MIT Sloan. Um, and it's like, what could possibly go wrong with this picture, right? It's, uh, and so the reason I'm telling you this is like the talk is about, uh, is about people and culture. And one of the things I've learned, uh, so I'm an engineering guy, right? I, I, um, I like code. I don't like being, I'm not, I'm not psychopathic. I'm just antisocial. I, I like humans okay. I just don't being or, like around them a lot, right? It's, uh, I, I like some humans. Um, but I'm, I'm going to posit this thesis to you that not all MBAs are like, genetically predisposed to startup failure. They're not all schmucks and they're not all chumps. There are actually some good ones that can contribute value. Um, and I think one of the mistakes uh, folks like I make is we kind of underestimate the value of like, non-engineering, non-product people. As it turns out, um, especially in this day and age, it takes, it takes more than just building a great product to actually build something successful. And I've learned this. Um, and so um, the, the nice thing about MBAs is they're the, the better ones, uh, which we tried to hire, are like super analytical, and they're not all just kind of the kind of paper pushing whatever it is like stereotypical notion that you have uh, about business school students. So anyway, I just want to dispel the myth right here, go on record and say MBAs are not all bad. So it's, uh... all right. So um, the thing I'm going to talk about here is, is culture, and uh, when I talk to talk to startups, um, most of them don't spend a lot of time thinking about culture and thinking about people. It's like okay, and I'm going to walk you through some of the re- common reasons why entrepreneurs like culture. Uh, one is, oh, culture, we've got that figured out. We've got Margarita Mondays. We've got a ping pong table. We're going to do Star Trek movies on Friday afternoons or something like that. So that's uh, rationalization number one. Number two is culture. 
Well, that's just something that happens organically. You don't create culture. That just sounds kind of creepy and kind of fishy, right? That's why we don't, uh, we don't do that. And then there's uh, one of my favorites is like, we're friggin' changing the world, put it in dental universe. That's our culture. And so, okay. Um, and so those are the kind of common buckets of reasons why um, early stage companies don't talk about culture. Um, and the most common one, and this is actually a legitimate one, is we've got a thousand things to do. We're trying to raise funding, we're trying to build product, we're trying to find co-founders, we're trying to figure out how to replace the VP of engineering that was supposed to quit his thing and didn't quit his thing, and like all those things that are happening in early stage land. Uh, you don't have time to think about uh, people and culture, which is uh, probably the best reason. Uh, and I'm gonna posit to you that uh, despite all those reasons, that not only should you think about culture, you should obsess over as early in the process as possible. Because of all the things you will do, that will have the time that you can spend, yes, build the product, um, but people is the thing that will cause the startup to succeed or fail. And the culture is going to define, we'll talk about this, who you bring in as a co-founder of the early team, and that's going to actually influence your overall probability of success more than most other things that you will do. Uh, most of you will start companies where um, the likelihood that you're able to build the product is relatively high. That's going to be fine. Uh, the, what's really the kind of stopping point sometimes is either there's no market or you have a falling out with the early team. Those are like a common causes of uh, startup stagnation or failure. So um, the other reason, I'm going to walk you through some of the arguments in favor of culture. Uh, we all know that all the time and calories you spend in product is good time and energy because the better the product is, the easier it is to attract users and customers. Not counterintuitive at all. That makes sense. I'm going to posit that there's a direct analogy around culture. The better your culture is, the easier it will be for you to attract co-founders and employees, eventually customers, investors, and other things. It actually matters. This is going to sound cliched and platitudinal uh, because it's cliched and platitudinal, but the overall purpose of a culture, the idea behind it is to A, attract amazing people, then help them do their best work. That's why you have it. That's why you should have a good one versus a crappy one. And the, the other one is, like in this I've seen happen so many times, um, so a bad, crappy culture, and there are multiple like, toxic cultures, uh, will not likely kill you immediately. It's not the fastest way to die. There are much faster ways to kill a startup. This is the most reliable. It will kill you. If the, if the culture is crappy, it's just a matter of time. Um, it will not, can't last. Um, so. And then this is the, for the um, economically and mathematically oriented. Um, there is relatively convincing evidence. This is one slide around. This is a comparison of the S&P 500 uh, based on the uh, survey of the happiness of the employees at those companies and their overall performance on the public markets, right? So we, it's like, okay, so culture sort of matters. At least there's the correlation. We may not be able to draw direct causality, but there's a correlation between companies with happy employees uh, tend to do better uh, performance-wise on the market. All right, so having said all that, HubSpot in our first three years, we're about nine-something years old now, uh, we did not use the word culture at all. And I know this because uh, neither my co-founder and I, we don't have phone calls. I don't have phone calls generally at all. Uh, as it turns out, I'm quirky that way. Um, so everything we've ever said to each other has been in late night emails from 11 p.m. to about 2 a.m. Like we have these long thousand word emails that go back and forth. So I look back through the archives like, oh, like when did we first start talking about culture? It was three years in. Uh, so we didn't do it. Uh, and then this happened. So what an, um, my co-founder, the CEO of HubSpot, went to uh, a, a CEO group, which the easiest way to think about is like group therapy for CEOs. Like, so they all go in and they kind of talk about issues of the day, which is super useful. I highly recommend it. Um, and so at this particular session that he went to, the, the theme was culture. And, uh, and we're still in our kind of early stages. And 
And so he has, uh, I guess, I don't think I can reveal the names anyway, but he had some high-fluten CEOs in his group. And, uh, and Brian's reaction, my co-founder, is like, well, culture, he had that last excuse. was like, we don't have time for that. We're trying to build this business. We're building a product. We're trying to get customers. We're doing all these things. Who has time for culture? And they beat him up over it. They're like, no, you do not understand. Your job as a CEO, this is like, this cannot be any higher on the priority list. It's like, it should be number one. Uh, you should do it. And so Brian nodded his head, got through that meeting. Um, then the next meeting that I had with him over beers, he's like, Darmesh, I've heard this culture thing is really, really important. Why don't you go do that? Um, now, that presented a problem uh, because on the extrovert to introvert scale, I'm like way over there, like way, like as possible, like way over there, right? It's, um, and so it's, it's, not, and it's not that I you know, don't like humans. There are some that I do like hanging around with. That's my wife and child, the gratuitous photo of the children. Um, and so then it's like, okay, you know, Brian's busy. He's doing other things. All he's really asking me to do is like what I thought my mission was going to be was, okay, well, we, you know, we have a culture. I just need to like collect some data and ask our employees what culture is, what they think about it, do they like it or not. It's a data collection kind of like write down and be the scribe for the culture that already exists. Like, ah, not pleasant. I'd rather be writing code, but okay, fine. I'll take one for the team. And within days... This is my reaction. It's like, this is the worst possible thing I've ever done to myself in the history of me. It was so bad. It was bad on so many levels. It was crazy. I'll give you one anecdote. Um, so I started like, sending emails around. It's like, by the way, I, like, I'm, I'm working on this thing. I'm trying to figure out culture at the company. And then I got these uh, like, flaming, respo flaming responses. Um, and I'm used to flaming responses from, from HubSpot employees <laughs> telling me I'm an idiot for uh, many different reasons. But this one was particularly, um, particularly acute and hard to take. They're like, Oh, so now we're talking about culture. Next, it's going to be like posters on the wall. And it's the, like, this is the first step down the slippery slope. And then this is the one that killed me. It's like, this is not the company that I thought I joined. It's like, you're killing me here. What? I, I, all I asked you was, are you happy or not? What do you think? That's like, wow. And people have this very visceral reaction when you start talking about uh, kind of people issues and culture. And so I sent this email. This is unedited uh, directly to my co-founder, which I'm going to paraphrase and say, well, I'll read it. Not sure how I wound up being the guy to lead the discussion on culture, but it's freaking hard. Eventually, we need to give this to someone that actually likes humans. Um, <laughs> so this is a late-night email, um, about two or three months after that original kind of interaction. Uh, so I, I didn't drop it. I'm like, okay, let's get back to the thing, whatever. We'll work through these issues, whatever. I, I do think it's important. I was going off and reading on what other people do. Um, and as it turns out, the data suggests that... Uh, so we did a survey um, and asked the employees, are you happy or not? Would you recommend HubSpot as a place to work on a scale of zero to 10? And the reality was good, which is, oh, they were super happy, ecstatically happy, maniacally happy. That was the good news. The second question we asked is, okay, well, why did you give us that score? And when we had this kind of recursion problem, the reason the people at HubSpot were happy was because of the other people at HubSpot. It's like, well, I don't know what to do with that, which is, okay, well, start with happy people and don't lose them, I guess. Um, and, and then they will attract more people that will also be happy. So this was, this was a challenge. Um, uh, we worked through this. So this is actually this is the last braggy slide. I forgot I had this one in there. Um, so Glassdoor does this kind of uh, nationwide survey of employees anonymously, like the Yelp for how many people have heard of Glassdoor? I'm just curious. Okay, all, just about all of you. All right, so they do this thing. Um, and unsurprisingly, last year, uh, Google is number one. You Facebook, and I just pulled out the tech companies, um, folks that you would know. Uh, this is one of the things we're most proud of. This is this year's scores. Um, so we came in at number four. I'm going to talk you through. Um, 
yeah, it's like what happened along the story. Um, so that's, that's, that's the last braggy slide. And so the approach we took in terms of culture um, is we took the kind of engineering, very geeked out way of thinking about it, which is, okay, well, culture, what it really is, the way I think about it, it's, it's like the operating system that everything else is kind of running on. It's like the heart, it's the machinery uh, that makes us run. Um, and we should kind of build it as such. And so I subsequently um, spent uh, hundreds of hours. It's, this is like the floor. I know it's bigger than this. Uh, this is all I'm willing to admit to. Uh, and the, the real pain was the fact that those 300 hours were not spent writing Python code. They were spent writing a PowerPoint deck, trying to describe culture at HubSpot. We thought it was, what we think it needed to be, uh, and resulted in this deck called HubSpot Culture Code. Um, and we made the Weird decision about a couple of years after we kind of started that process. It's like, oh, well, this is useful. Like in the kind of open source mentality, we have this uh, very kind of transparent culture. It's like, ah, we'll put it out there to see if this is useful to other people. Um, and it's been wildly popular for reasons that are not completely clear. Um, and I think it's because the topic's on people's minds. Uh, so that's done well. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk you through some of the kind of mechanics of how we came up with the stuff we came up with and some of the things that I think are useful. This is not to tell you about HubSpot culture and what it's like. It's to tell you about the thought process that went into some of the things that I think are generally, um, generally good. So the first thing we kind of recognized, uh, our first kind of observation, was that all of us, um, you know, humanity overall, and people that work for companies um, and startups all over, had uh, kind of dramatically changed how they live and work. So um, in the left column are the things that people used to care about. That was their thing. In the right column is the way they are now, right? And most of you will have, like, especially the younger generation, will nod your heads like, yeah, I can't believe. What's that pension? Like, what is that? Um, and like, when, it's inconceivable to any of us that we're going to spend an entire career. People did this, by the way, back in the day. They spent their entire professional career in one company, and that was the thing that you did. Um, and I was like, what? Like, whatever. I'm not, like, no, I'm not staying here. For, I'm definitely not. Uh, anyway. And so... Our reaction was like, okay, well, it looks like a lot of these companies are essentially frozen in time. They're, they've got this thing that they're doing that makes no sense for the current reality in terms of the people that are working there, people they want to attract. It just doesn't make any sense. So we went out to fix that, um, and this, that starts with the whole the culture code kind of describes. Like, here's what's broken. Here's how we think. I'm not going to bore you with this stuff. Um, and, and this is going to sound passionate. I'm going to skip by this, actually, even though it's like the most important slide in the deck, but I'll put it up there for a little while. Um, this one is, um, is crucial. I love this quote. And the idea here is most of the dysfunctions that exist in a startup or a company of any size, most of them happen in dark corners behind closed doors or is when the stupidest stuff happens. And if you can shine light into those things that are happening right now, the likelihood of stupidity, just flat-out stupidity, goes down. It's like, so if like, there's like two people trying to make a decision, it's like, okay, we're going to go just talk this through, whatever, and then we will reveal to the employees what we came up with you are much more likely to make very stupid decisions in those circumstances. So the more light you can shine into the process, uh, overall, uh, the better the outcome, better the decision. As a result of that, we made the decision early on in the company um, to share just about everything with everyone, period. Uh, the only different, only exceptions 
were if we were legally bound not to share it, like if we were working on some M&A transaction where we had a contractual obligation not to share it, or, um, and we can talk about this in the Q&A if, if you're curious, individual compensation data, because it was data that we felt like we didn't exclusively own as the company. It was kind of a shared data thing between the individual and us. Everything else, the board deck, the financials, how much money we burned, when we were gonna run out of cash, what the overall valuations were, what discussions we were having with the VCs, everything was shared with everyone. Um, and that was, that worked out well. The other thing we did, I'll give you this quick hack. So we have, um, it's very open culture, lots of people do that. Uh, what, something that a lot of people don't do, I'll give you the anecdote here. So um, we start off, just my co-founder and I, we're in this room with uh, four desks. Common uh, startup environment. Actually, that's probably, we were like living luxuriously because there's like two desks that are open, that was amazing. Um, and so then we hired the first employees, like okay, well, like where should that person sit? Um, and it seemed unfair uh, originally, just like okay, well, why should we have, just because we happen to be here, um, so what we did is like we had this hack. It's like, okay, what we'll do is we'll do a random lottery and we'll pick desks. And, uh, and we did it because we're geeked out. We're like, okay, well, it's not like whoever gets it gets the window seat because that's, you know, because not everybody wants the window seat. So whoever, as your turn came up in the lottery, you got to pick whichever the open desks were left. Essentially, very, very simple, simple hack. And then what we did was like, okay, well, every time we hire someone, we're going to go reshuffle desks. We're going to go through the lottery process again. So employee number four, employee number 10, employee number 50, employee number 80. And all along the way, People told us, well, that's just crazy. Like, yeah, it worked at 10 people, maybe 50. I don't know how you do it. 200 people, 400 people, and we kept going. And if I think back on it now in terms of like simple hacks, can you imagine the countless hours that has saved just from raw office politics? Now, a lot of you are young, um, and so you haven't had the mind-numbing experience of like arguing over like one inch of like office space. It's like, wait a second, Susie has a better thing than I do, or what? Like, it's we, ha we avoided all of that, right? Trying to think through all that, just, just that one simple hack. Um, so the moral of the story, by the way, there is get the simple hacks in early. It's much harder to make those kinds of changes um, later. The other one that's interesting, um, so we have this kind of hyper-transparent culture of share everything, and this is something we had to add later in the deck because there was much confusion around it. It's like, well, Darmesh, I thought we were transparent, but then this decision get made, and it, I don't remember being asked for like a vote. It's like, well, no, transparency means we will tell you how the process works, what's going into it, but someone owns that decision. We do not make decisions by consensus. Someone owns it, and we trust them to make the right decision. So transparency is not the same thing as, as democracy. This one, uh, another hack. So as we were growing, it's like, okay, well, we have to like, do things and have some guidelines around sick time and vacations and stuff like that. Um, and, and we didn't have that. And as we were growing, it's like our chief console and our CFO said, okay, well, now is the time to start writing down, like get an employee manual together and put all this stuff together. We need guidelines. Uh, and we said, we don't want to do that. Is it legally required? Well, no, not technically. It's not legally required. Um, but you should, we should have. So we made exactly three words um, as our policy for everything, unless otherwise stated, which is use good judgment. Uh, should I buy a round of drinks? I'm at this event. Uh, it's really snowing. I know you guys don't experience this, but it's really snowing hard outside. Should I come into the office or can I stay home and work from home? Use good judgment. We don't care. Uh, we care, but we don't care um, in terms of what decision you make. Um, I'm going to skip through this in the interest of time. Um, let data make this the geeked out. Most of the engineering folks in here will appreciate this. Uh, don't use rank, essentially. Uh, nice kind of... I'm going to try and get to the QA. I'm trying to spitting through this because I'm sensing... A, yeah, that well, we should be going to QA. I'm going to walk you through some of the uh, landmines. This is like the, the first thing they teach you when you're doing like a public presentation, like when I'm reading a project, like a, do not end on a dark note. Uh, so I'm going to end on a dark note. Um, is 
first thing you learn, this I kind of hinted at this uh, in the beginning parts, is that um, like the immediate reaction is like, okay, well, the first rule of culture is you do not talk about culture, right? That was the immediate reaction I got from, from the employee base. What I've learned since then is in order for it to work, you have to talk about it incessantly. Like, incessantly, you have to keep, like, this is what it is. Because as you're growing, you think um, that, like, oh, well, everybody kind of gets this. Like, we've been around. Like, no, they don't. I guarantee you they don't get it. Um, and as you're kind of adding new people, so you have to keep talking about it. First decide what it is, um, and then communicate it constantly. The other one, this is back to software. Like, some people, it's like, okay, well, these are our values, and this is what it is, and this is the way it's going to be because our founders said so 20 years ago or whatever it is. That doesn't work. Uh, culture is more like software um, than, than hardware, let's say, I guess, from a parallel perspective. You should be iterating on it and building it just like you would a product. Um, so our culture code deck is in version 37 of the ones that we publicly published, right? So we keep going back. It's like, oh, well, this is quite, not quite right. We find bugs in it. We have a backlog of, of requests and change requests and things like that. I someday want to put it into GitHub and, and do that, but it's, uh, we haven't figured that out yet. But anyway, so... This is the other dark one. This is the, probably the biggest reason you should invest some time in deciding what your culture is. Uh, those that are in engineering um, understand the notion of technology debt. So technology debt is you take this shortcut, you hack something together, and you put it out there because in the interest of time, you just want to get it out there, and you know that was hacky code, and you're going to have to go fix it someday and pay off the debt, similar to financial debt. I need the cash now, and I'm willing to pay some interest rate and pay it off in the future because the cash right now is necessary. Same thing with technology debt, and there is such a thing as culture debt. And culture debt is, yeah, this person is sort of a jerk, but they're so good, and we've been recruiting, we've been trying to find this designer for like two and a half months. They're the best one we've seen so far, and we have no idea when the next one's going to come along that we really like, but I don't really want to be around them. And then you'll rationalize, like, oh, yeah, but they'll just work remotely. It'll be fine. Um, it's usually not fine. What ends up happening is that uh, they make everybody around them miserable. Everybody that comes in interviews with the company, if that interacts with that person, it's like, okay, well, this is, I don't want to work for this company. They won't tell you that, right, because uh, they're interviewing. Um, and the funny thing is about um, when you incur technology debt, you can go back and say, you know what? I wrote this hacky code. It's really slow or really buggy or something's happening. I am going to pay this debt off. I'm going to rewrite it. It's going to be beautiful. I'm going to refactor the code. It's going to be awesome. Culture debt, you might do the same thing. Like the parallel would be it's like, oh, we're going to, we discovered this person's a jerk. We're going to let them go. Right? That's, now, the difference is that when you refactor that code, you've basically paid off your debt. When you fire that person that was a jerk, you haven't completely paid off the debt because the things that they, like the plant in the minds of the people there, it's like you're still kind of be rooting out and you will never know whether you completely got rid of some of the toxicity they left behind. It's amazing how much impact, especially in an early team, uh, that can have. So be very, very careful. Um, and it's easy for me to say, right? And, I, it's, and it's, But it's so tempting. Like, just, okay, we just need this person. We'll figure it out later. It'll be okay. Um, it won't, as it turns out. It'll be okay, but it'll be painful. It's not worth it. Um, the other one that's uh, interesting, so when we came out with the early iterations of the, the culture code deck um, and, and HubSpot's culture, we're like, okay, we've got it. We've gotten all the feedback. This is what our culture is. Awesome. Like, our work is done here. And then, like, the engineers will come back. It's like, well, Darmesh, I know the culture code says, like, oh, we believe anyone can work from anywhere. Uh, that's what it says in the deck. That's our philosophy. Like, we don't believe in specific office locations or whatever. We like the freedom of uh, working from anywhere. And our VP of engineering comes along and says, well, I don't like that. Like, we think we do much better work when we're co-located. That's uh, an example. So what ends up happening is that um, you have this, what I think of as like the federal versus state issue. So the issue here is you're going to have what you will think of as like kind of federal law. 
Like these are the things that are inviolate, right? So we think of it as like the inalienable rights of a HubSpotter. Like we will not take transparency away. No one can decide that you don't get access to the financials. Those are something that we hold inviolate. We won't change it. But then there are certain things like, okay, well, this is our overall philosophy, but if an individual group disagrees with that particular structure, that particular guideline, they're welcome to override it as long as they can kind of convince uh, their team and if it's the right thing to do. So that's, uh, and that always shows up. Anytime you have more than two people or one person with a dual personality, there's always these kind of subcultures uh, that, that develop in a group. Um, all right, so everyone wants to hire for culture fit. This is the last dark slide, and then I'm going to end on a happy note. Um, so I'm going to go on a, a very, very short rant, but it's an important one. I talk to entrepreneurs and people all the time that says, we hire for culture fit. Like, we, we hire for culture And then my question is, that awesome that you hire for culture fit. What's your culture? Just, like, describe it. I'm not, I'm not like, trying to be aggressive. I'm not, I'm not a confrontational guy at all, but, like, what is it? I'm curious. And if you can't tell me what your culture is, that means when you say we hire for culture fit, that means you hire people just like yourself. And you're using culture as a shorthand for being able to like, hire people just like yourself. So you should not be allowed to say that we hire for culture fit unless you can tell people what that culture is. Because otherwise, you have these kind of all sorts of biases that kick in, and that's a very, very dangerous thing. So this is one of the probably the most important reasons um, to write your culture down. It doesn't have to be a 128-slide PowerPoint deck like we have, um, but it should be written down, even if it's in an email. Like it's, something has to exist that people have access to so they know kind of what it is. Um, and then my closing note is every company, however many people, is going to have a culture. Cultures exist, period, um, anytime more than one person um, is together. And with a few calories, I'm not suggesting you go off and spend hundreds of hours, but every hour, five hours, 10 hours you spend in those early days uh, have dramatic leverage. So might as well build a culture you're going to love and build a company you want to work for and work in. Um, so thank you, and I will take questions. Yes. Hi, I was wondering if you had anyone that acted as a mentor to you, and if so, in what ways did they guide you? Yeah, um, I, haven't, I haven't had an official... Oh, sorry, yes. The question is, uh, have I ever had a mentor that kind of guided me and kind of helped me through the process? Uh, the answer is uh, no, no official mentor. Um, I think that, not that I wouldn't have wanted one or I didn't think it would be useful. Um, I don't have the personality, because I'm, I'm introvert. I'm not going to reach out to some random person. It's like, oh, can you be my mentor? Like, it's... Um, it feels a little bit awkward to me. Uh, that, that was uh, stupid of me, honestly, because it would have been useful. But, uh, but I've read a lot, so I feel like I know people that are in the community. Um, and I've gotten better about it now, so now I will kind of reach out if there's like, someone in my peer group, um, um, companies going through similar issues, and I'll have like, random dinners with them, and there's no official mentor relationship. But uh, I strongly advise that I've known people that have mentors, um, and most of them swear by them, that there's, like, it's an awesome thing. Um, so. um, we'll go here, and then we'll go around. Yep. So in most organizations, I've seen that like culture seems it, like it has to be defined at the top most level. What would you do if you were in an organization where the leadership does not want to focus on culture, yep. but they need to? Okay. So the question is, often culture needs to come down from the kind of from the top um, and kind of define the culture. And what do you do in an organization where leadership is not bought into uh, bought into that kind of process? Um, so a couple of things. One is uh, cultures correctly done. The only way, real way they stick is um, it has to be a collaborative process with the team. Because uh, uh, if I had tried, which I sort of did in, in the early 
It's like, okay, well, here's what I think um, you know, culture should be. Because I've read a lot, and I know things, um, and I've been around the company a bunch. Um, you get revolting people just don't buy in it, so it doesn't work. So that's number one is uh, cultures can't be created by edict. It has to be through this kind of collaborative process that ideally would be transparent. Now, then the question is around, okay, well, what if you know, the leadership of the company just doesn't value culture? Uh, send them a link to this video, and I'll uh, help make the pitch. But it's, it's, it's hard. Uh, you have to kind of help them recognize the importance of it, uh, maybe introduce them either to some material or some person's kind of live through it. Because most people that have been, kind of been through the process uh, in, in both directions, no one will argue. No one I know has ever argued. It's like, well, Darmesh, you know, we spent a little bit of that, that, that whole culture thing. That was highly overrated. Not once have I heard that. Uh, not once. So, yes, we'll go here, and then we'll go back. Yep. What kind of questions do you ask to, to, when you're hiring people to determine culture? So what kind of questions do I ask in order to determine culture fit? Um, so we have this kind of set of five um, attributes that we solve for. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, and, and one of them is humility. It's like number one. Uh, it's like, yeah, uh, humility and effectiveness and transparency, and there's a bunch of them. And, and so what we do is we ask questions that are geared around um, all five of the attributes, essentially. And so we have a separate um, kind of set of questions. So we have the things that test for skill set. Do you know the things that you need to do to do this job? Uh, but then the other ones are around, we're trying to whittle out, um, is someone humble or not? Like it's, uh, as it turns out, I don't even need to interview someone in order to figure that out. I have a very, very high, um, highly sensitized, uh, roughly accurate uh, arrogance detector. Like I can, I can, literally, I can tell in like three-sentence email whether someone uh, where they kind of generally fall on the kind of humility versus arrogance and ego scale. Um, so what we do is that we, um, and every person that interviews at HubSpot has a different thing in terms of how they weed out the things, but every hire and every promotion, uh, we rate the people on, on their, uh, how they fit the culture. Essentially like, okay, was this person humble? Not just when they get hired, but every point. So if you are non-humble, let's say you snuck in somehow because you kind of faked it. Uh, I don't know how you do that, but let's say you did. Um, you, it, it will get caught eventually because uh, every promotion, every review process, we're like, okay, well, on a scale of zero to 10, was this person transparent? Do you think of this person as being transparent? So that gets high. Um, so yeah, we're, we're a little bit uh, draconian about it, I guess is probably the best word. I'm going to go here and then I'll come back. Excuse me. Yeah. Yes? Uh, kind of an extension of a former question. Who owns the 120 page PowerPoint deck? You were talking about like, collaborative, but yep. you also said that decisions aren't made by consensus. Is it you or is it the head of HR? Or yeah, um, great question. So it's exactly 128 slides, by the way. Uh, in case you were curious, it's always been, 100, um, well, not for years it has been. Every time I add a slide, I take a slide away. So it's exactly that way. It puts a constraint on. Uh, and I own it in terms of being the scribe for the deck. Um, so it's the kind of benevolent dictator for life in open source world kind of thing. So I take contributions. I'll take essentially the equivalent of a pull request. Uh, and then I'll weave it in and I'll put it out there for, for comment and then RFC form within the company. It's like, okay, here's what the next version of the deck looks like. What do you think? Often I get flamed, um, but then I kind of weigh that back and forth. It's like, okay, well, this still overall, even though, so it's not done by vote, but anyway, I own it. So every change that's made, every, every word on every slide, um, I, I own, yeah. Yes. Um, so you mentioned that transparency is one of the biggest advantages in the company. So yeah. are there any challenges associated with having such a transparent culture? Um, yeah, there are. Um, there are challenges. The question is, um, you know, transparency is such a big part of um, big part of the culture. Are there any challenges or downsides? Uh, there are challenges, but they're most people overweight the danger involved, the risk involved in being hyper transparent. So when we started doing this, right, when we were, first of all, I'm going to tell you the hack because it's an interesting one. When we hired our first employee, so first it was just my co-founder and I, you know, hired the you know, third person coming into the team. 
one of the decisions we have to make is like, okay, well, what do we tell this person? Like that was like a decision we have to make. And uh, my co-founder and I looked at each other. It's like, well, the, the easiest path is like, tell them everything, right? It's like a, that's an easy, easy binary kind of choice. And so then we just kept doing that. And then as we grew, uh, our board, our advisors, people just like, okay, well, yeah, that's fine right now. But what happens when you guys are out raising a funding round and they can see the cash balance kind of depleting and they know you've been on the road for five weeks and it's like the cash is going to run or like what happens then? And as it turns out, nothing. Um, it's like even though it's gone through those dark periods. And the funny thing is, uh, so, so yes, there's risk involved, but what ends up happening when you have a hyper-transparent culture, when you know what the rules are, so we have this hyper-transparent culture, you end up hiring people that are way unlikely to take advantage or abuse that trust, right? It's like, okay, well, if, if we didn't have that transfer, like, we can hire people. It's like, okay, well, is this someone that we feel like we can, like, reveal all of our financials so that we can tell this, will they use this against us? Will they, um, and in nine and a half years, we have 1,100 employees in the company. We have never had a breach of trust, right? And it's, it's crazy. And we've had lots of people, and we grow fast. We've had people leave. Um, so I would still highly recommend doing it. Yes, there are challenges, but the upside is immense. Number one, is as a society, um, we value transparency a lot, especially like early stage, uh, especially in startup land. Um, I, I was going to run this diabolical experiment at HubSpot, and I use the word diabolical because that's the word to use. Uh, that's what it is. I was going to go ask people when they were hired, it's like, okay, we have this thing, we have this very transparent culture, here's this kind of server that we have, this wiki, that we have all these documents and all this information. Uh, you can have access to that, or you can get 10% more in comp if you just don't care about that. That was, it's like, okay, what's the actual economic value that people would just, uh, place on the kind of access to information? Trans like, do you really want it that badly? I didn't run the experiment. My thesis is if we had run the experiment, just about everyone would have said, I want access to the information. Because it, it gives you a level of security that you know what's going on. Not that you need to like, contribute to every decision. Uh, but once again, it's like, okay, well, it's like in startup land, it's a very crazy thing. This is one of the things when you're recruiting, which is you're going to do when you start building the company, you're convincing the overall kind of goal of an early stage startup is to convince exceptionally smart people to do this very stupid thing, which is join you in this kind of crazy thing that has, doesn't make any sense, right? Like if you like objectively looked at it, it's like, why would they do that? Um, what transparency allows you to do is at least make some convincing arguments like, okay, if, we're if this is completely crazy, at least you'll know what's going on. Um, and it gives you, yeah, lots of leverage in terms of recruiting and things like that. So I think we had a question here. And then yes, then I'll go back this way. So back to the uh, example of the individual with a fabulous skill set who's a jerk. Yep. Um, I, you, you, I think you sort of put out there the binary decision to keep them and incur the cultural debt or get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether the middle ground of maybe working with them to help them to, in, you know, somehow or other incorporate or yep. assimilate to the culture in a way that actually comes up with the win-win. Yep. What's your perception on that? Okay, so the question is, I'm going to shorten it, which is um, when you have mistakenly hired a jerk, you have two options. One is you can kind of develop them into less jerkiness um, versus just letting them go, and what's the experience? Uh, my experience has been there's actually two kinds of jerks. Uh, one kind of jerk, so, it so sometimes uh, actually normal good people manifest as jerks because it's just like they're in their heads and they just come off that way. And in my mind, the, the discriminating factor of what makes one a jerk and the other one uh, not, really, is uh, like what they're solving for, right? There are people that are like, I'm a little bit this way. Um, I'm super analytical, and I will, like, it's like I will question like, everything, right? It's, uh, like, and that's just like, academic in me a little bit. Uh, but I like to think of myself as not a jerk. 
And the, so, the, so the difference is, are they being jerky just to belittle someone else? Are they doing it out of their own ego? Uh, or are they just doing it because that's just their way of getting inputs or something like that? It's in their nature, but they're still solving for the greater good, right? So we have people that are uh, skeptics, and this is one. Um, this is actually a really good one. So there's cynics, and there are skeptics. And the little definition for a cynic is not only that they don't believe uh, like good thing is happening, they're cynical, they don't believe good is possible. That's the literal like, distinction. A skeptic is skeptical, but they will say, oh, I'm kind of skeptical about this particular decision, but the reason they're expressing that skepticism is because they, they believe they have the hope that it'll get better, and that's why they're sharing it. Cynics are different. Uh, jerks, similar kind of parallel, which is uh, some jerks are just doing it uh, to belittle people because that's how they think they kind of raise their own uh, value. And it's uh, yeah. hard to tell sometimes, uh, but yeah, that's the distinction. Uh, hold on, I'm going to go. Wait, that person had a hand up earlier. I don't, I don't know how I know that, but okay. Uh, so my question is really, you know, looking at the list in terms of companies that people really enjoy working at, most of them seem to be successful companies that are doing very well. Yep. Right? Uh, how about when things don't go well? When there are layoffs going on, yep. when you have a mortgage, you have kids, yep. you know, you have a lot of stress in your life. Yep. Um, people really tend to, you know, kind of develop different attitudes and personalities and things like that. What's your experience, you know, dealing with those sort of situations? Because that's when you really need culture. That's when you really need people to come together yep. to help you get out of that situation. Yep. Um, what's your Good question. So the question is. You know, successful companies tend to show up on those kind of happy employees list because uh, they have the resources, they can kind of do the things that are necessary. Um, how do you do that uh, when resources are limited, when going through dark times, possible layoffs? Um, and my answer to this is like, the, uh, real culture is not about you know, ping pong tables and beer Fridays and things like that. It's, uh, it's about these kind of core, kind of first principles kind of stuff. And in my experience, what's happened, uh, this is HubSpot's my third startup, right? Um, and I've lived through layoffs, I've lived through company shutdowns, I've lived through um, a lot of different things. And one thing I've realized is that um, when you have the right people on board and you're transparent with them, uh, they will cut you a lot of slack. Like I've had people volunteer to take pay cuts because I go, Darmesh, I know we're not going to be able to meet payroll. I love this company. I love what we're doing. Uh, you know, I'll go to 50% salary, uh, and, and we'll do, it's like, I've, and, and that happens. Like, people are willing to uh, live through the pain as long as you're honest with them. The issue, turns up, is when you're going through dark times, and this misguided notion of protecting the team from the reality that, and that's the rationalization entrepreneurs sometimes use, um, you know, and, and it's not malintent. They're like, oh, well, you know, it's part of my job to buffer the team from this darkness that's happening over here, right? And you have to be careful with that, because you don't want to just lay everything out there uh, out of your own kind of, like, oh, I just need to kind of share this misery or something like that. It needs to be uh, from the greater good of the company and for that individual. It's like, okay, this is something they should know. I know it's hard. I know it's tough. But here's what we're going through. Um, and that's the true test of a culture is, like, if you have that in place. Um, so, and it's, so it's interesting. We, um, so every quarter for the last, well, uh, six-plus years, um, so every three months we do an employee to, uh, survey to all employees um, across the entire company that asked the exact same question I asked in the first one, which is based on NPS on a scale of 0 to 10, how likely are you, are you to recommend HubSpot as a place to work? And we've been taking that data in every month for six plus years. And that is, in our minds, like the leading indicator of how the company is actually doing. I can look at the financials, but if there's a problem, that's the canary in the coal mine. It's like, okay, we'll see that, like, and now we kind of slice it a little bit by group and by geography, we have multiple offices. It's like, okay, well, there's something wrong in the sales group because and you can see it. It's like, okay, there's something wrong with leadership. This is usually what it is. Um, something's going on. And so what, what's interesting is that when we've had our dark times, 
um, and we've had them, our NPS goes up. Employees are happier. Um, and one of the dark, darker times, it wasn't dark because it went poorly. When we were in public, that was the thing the employees were most worried about. It's like, okay, well, when public, companies go public, this happens because they're going to stop sharing information with us because now they're a pub, you know, we're a publicly traded company. They can't do those kinds of things. Um, our overall happiness, uh, as measured kind of objectively that we've been doing for years, went up post-IPO uh, than before. It's like we talked about it, we came through it, um, put a couple of interesting hacks in place. Uh, one which I have, I'm a big hack guy, so I'm going to tell you this because I forgot to tell you earlier. In the process of going, this is unapplicable. I'm going to tell you anyway because it's fun. So when we were going public, so we had this hyper-transparent culture, shared all the financials with everybody, put it all out there, all, you know, all uh, 1,000 employees. And then our legal counsel and the bankers come back, like, okay, well, now that you're going public, what you need to do is you need to like, figure out this kind of group of insiders, um, and, and there will be regulations around them in terms of when they can trade stock and all these things. And, it's like, and, and you just need to pick who your list is. Is it going to be your CFO or whatever? And it's like, Darmesh, if you want to be on that list, that's completely fine. Whatever, okay. And then my co-founder and I pause. It's like, okay, well, it's like, okay, well, like, what's the regulation? Like, how many of them can we have? Because we're trying to figure out, like, who should we leave? Um, and so they come back. It's like, well, there's no, like, like limit. Like, no, but, you know, it's like usually, you know, six, eight, ten. So we made every single employee a designated insider. Every single one. And our chief counsel, they thought we were crazy. And it has been done before. We didn't know this at the time. Um, but it's like, okay, well, that's stupid. Like, don't, don't assume rules that are in place. It's like, and so that's the kind of stuff that I think gives people uh, confidence that just because we've been public, we're not going to go down in crashing, burning flames, which may anyway, um, but hopefully won't be because of stupid reasons like that. But yeah. Um, yes? So you mentioned that your co-founder went to like a, a CEO roundtable discussion and that that was the impetus for, for that started you folks down this path. Mm -hmm. Can you comment in terms of your own personal growth, uh, professional growth in terms of your journey at HubSpot, have you yourself found coaches or mentors, your own sort of like CTO roundtable to discuss these issues with? Because yep. you've got a very visceral, intuitive sense of how this all works now, and yep. it's clear that you've digested this through several layers as you've gone through this experience. Yeah, so the question is around, um, you know, so the CEO, my CEO went to this kind of CEO group. Question is, do I go, have I been to those kind of group things or whatever? Um, not formal ones uh, that exist. What, the one thing I've been doing, though, but I've been doing it for 15 plus years now, I do these informal dinners uh, with people that kind of I know I've met online, or have known, and some people I know, some people I don't know. Every city I travel into, I'll do these kind of random ad hoc dinners. Um, and I have a couple of uh, hacks, as you might expect, uh, for these dinners. One is I never plan them in advance. I send the email the day of and say, oh, by the way, I'm in town. My schedule's changed. Are you open for dinner? Question number two is, do you know anyone else that you've been wanting to meet or you think I should meet? And we'll have dinners from anywhere from two people to 30 people, um, any given thing. And the overall, and I don't label it as this, uh, but it's what I call, um, and I've done this now um, kind of semi-officially, I call it the founder therapy dinner. Right? And this is super important. And as I was going through it, and I try to get round tables instead of square tables. There's a bunch of weirdness that goes into how I pick uh, venues and stuff. I sound for, solve for acoustics because you want to have a conversation. Um, and it's funny because what ends up happening is that uh, the same dynamics that um, exist in uh, group therapy actually apply here. And 50% of the problem that founders go through, which is a 50% of the problem that any kind of uh, issue you're dealing with, is this kind of belief that you're alone. Like, I am the only one living this thing, whatever, there's something wrong with me, and that's why I'm having these problems. If I were a better founder, I would not be having these issues. And I have found um, overwhelming evidence uh, that 
all founders have almost the same issues. Same issues. Uh, most of them are people issues, as it turns out. Uh, but they, ha they have the issues. And, and maybe they may be time-shifted and based on stage. They've either lived them, but they're living something. I have not met a single founder, including ones that are multi-billion dollar uh, companies now, that says, oh, yeah, it was a really tough ride those first three or four years, but boy, is it easy now. Like, I don't have any, like, no, it doesn't happen, right? Um, so I strongly encourage you as you're going through this because, uh, A, find a co-founder or multiple co-founders because startup life is super lonely, like super, super lonely. Uh, and if you misguidedly don't get a co-founder, find a peer group that you can kind of talk to on a, on a regular basis and kind of vent and share and kind of live the journey, at least with someone else. Um, yeah. Yes? So usually you'll find that most public companies, when they put out their financial statements, will adjust some things around to kind of make the company look good. Yep. Um, usually to instill confidence in you know the investors in the market. Do you find that with having such transparency, specifically in regards to your financials, that that has the opposite effect with you? That it hurts maybe your stock price or your investment? Uh, it it may. So I'll tell you our stance, and uh, and we can determine the market will determine whether it hurts us or helps. I think it helps us because we did this on the road show. Uh, so we did. So we've had these metrics inside the company for all of our entire history. Uh, so when we went on the roadshow, uh, we didn't redefine things like lifetime value and CAC and the financials that uh, you know, SaaS companies or tech companies often report. And we said, okay, well, here are the financials we've been using, literally the financials we've been using to run the business for the last you know, seven years. Um, and we didn't change a darn thing, uh, right? And so then it was much easier for us to answer, like, answer the questions or whatever. And yes, it did not put us in as positive a light as it might have, uh, but the, the street appreciated the transparency. They got it. Um, and, it's, and we've been fortunate. It's been, you know, it's, we're only about a little over a year in, uh, four public quarters, and they've been positive financially. We've hit the metrics and things like that. That helps, obviously, but um, yeah, that's it. Um, go here, and then we'll go across. Yes. I'm curious. Uh, I noticed your, your CEO and co-founder wrote a, a book on marketing lessons learned from the Grateful Dead. Yes. And the openness of your culture and transparency connected with financial success um, seems to parallel that. I'm curious what other lessons you might have learned or build on from the Grateful Dead. You mentioned the Roadshow just now. Yeah. Um, can you bring culture and the Grateful Dead a little bit more explicitly into focus here? Uh, wow. Okay. So the question is, my co-founder, uh, Brian Halligan, uh, he's, a big, he's a big deadhead, big fan of the Grateful Dead. He wrote a book on marking lessons from the Grateful Dead. And the question is, can we apply like, lessons from the Grateful Dead to culture? And the answer is, I personally cannot because I'm not a deadhead. But what I will tell you, um, in terms of the overall uh, the business of HubSpot, uh, the, the entire reason the company exists, the overall idea, which I didn't talk about, but I did not pay this person to give me a reason to at least tell you a little bit about HubSpot, is we uh, created this thing called inbound marketing. And the thesis is that um, people hate being marketed to. We hate being cold called. We hate spam. We hate junk mail, all those things. Uh, and HubSpot's overall approach was to kind of change marketing to make it more empathetic and more open. It's like, here's what we're doing. This is why. Um, and, you know, Openly you know, publish your pricing, don't hide customer reviews, like all these positive things that lots of companies just weren't doing. Um, so our thesis is that in the long run, um, especially with the connectedness that we have in the world, um, transparency trumps opaqueness in the long term, period. Like, and whether it's culture, whether it's what you're selling, it's marketing, it's whatever it is, uh, and, it's, and I know I'm going to be right. The only question is the time horizon, right? It's like, okay, well, I'm going to be writer about some things on transparency always trumping um, opaqueness. But 
like people just have access to so much information now. You cannot get away with the crap you used to get away with before, and that's why companies did it because they could. Uh, I just don't. Not only do I think it's the right thing to do, I think it's the optimum thing to do. Um, yeah. Yes. So you opened a Singapore office last quarter. Yep. You plan to open an office in Tokyo. Yep. This year. So my question is, when you propagate your transparency culture, yep. Cross the country borders. Yep. What are the major problems? It's a good question. So, the, so we're, you know, HubSpot um, has offices in Sydney, uh, Dublin, Singapore. We're opening an office in Japan. Um, and how does this uh, translate? How does our culture translate uh, across borders and things like that? I'll give you um, a slightly long answer because I think it's an important one. Of all the decisions we've made at HubSpot, uh, one of the toughest ones when we first opened our remote office in Dublin, right? And the reason is we were scared to death because, okay, well, our culture, this is realized we had like no offices for the first like six years or so. Um, it's like, okay, we're going to open this office in Dublin. We have no freaking idea how to take this magic that's working here and transpose it over to Dublin. We, like, we don't know how to do that. We don't have that muscle group. I know other companies have done it and done it well. We know it's possible, but we haven't done this. Um, we were scared to death. And so what we ended up doing, um, we made a couple of decisions. I'm going to share the one with you that has been the most impactful uh, in terms of increasing the odds of success, and it's going very well is uh, when we went to Dublin, we didn't do it for this reason, but uh, Dublin had a depressed economy for a while, Ireland did overall, uh, leading up to that. And there were great tech companies in Dublin, but they did what most companies do when they go outside. It's like, okay, we're gonna send our crappy projects there, we're gonna go there for because the labor's cheaper for whatever reasons or whatever, and we didn't do that. Uh, we did the exact opposite, which is, okay, here are the rights that every HubSpotter has. These are HubSpotters, therefore they have these rights. Right? So when we went into Europe, it's like, okay, so we have unlimited vacation. And people told us, it's like, and they meant it facetiously, it's like, well, you can't have unlimited vacation in Europe. They will never show up for work. Right? Like that was, um, and as it turns out, that's not true. Right? It's, uh, because, and so we do do that. You have to still have a doc if there's some laws around having like a minimum thing or whatever. But, and so we did is like we said, okay, we're going to take all the things that make HubSpot HubSpot, and we're going to try not to change the things simply because uh, it's possible for us to do that or get away with it, essentially. We've tried to, and that's helped. And we've done a bunch of other things in terms of bringing people back here and trying to infuse it. But uh, it's one of the things on my list of things that keep me up at night is how do we take the thing that's working right now? It's like it's, um, yeah, I don't want to end it on dark note, but I'm going to, I'll take one last question. Uh, we'll go way in the back there. When you look at that culture code and companies download that and accept it, what kind of success do you see and what challenges do they have typically? I don't know if they give you that feedback. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. Um, hi, David. I haven't seen him in eight years. He was uh, employee number three in my first startup. Um, uh, <laughs> So the question is, how do we get, okay, so one of the things I did, this is relatively recent, so at the end of the culture code deck, there's an email address, and it's culturecodehubspot.com, and people, and I invite people to, the deck invites people to provide commentary and feedback, good or bad, uh, and I read every one of those emails, every single one, uh, respond to probably 95% of them, the only ones I don't respond to are the ones that are self-promotional and spammy, trying to pitch me something, um, and the interesting thing is, uh, how universal some of these ideas are. Like I, so, and I will forward some of them to the team because I think they're very, very cool. But like people from all walks of life, will, and they're not even in tech, they're not in startups, they're just working for some manufacturing firm in Boise, Idaho or something. And they're like, I read the Culture Code deck and I was like nodding the whole way through. I've had emails like, this thing made me cry, like that kind of stuff. And it's very gratifying to kind of see that like 
even though we're kind of geeked out and techy and weird and sitting out in Boston in our own little bubble, um, like some of these concepts seem to like resonate with people, and that's uh, very gratifying. So, uh, and I haven't gotten any, which is surprising for the internet, like no hate mail. And no one's like, oh, well, you're obviously doing this and this and the other thing just to take advantage of employees, and you're going to try and put off deferred comp or some, something. I don't know what it is, but I've not gotten any, which is I probably jinxed myself. Thanks for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs>